Three, two, one, roll the footage. <laughs> Welcome everybody, I'm Simon Severino, your host, and today our guest is the CEO of the GFF, the Global Futures and Foresights Institute. He uses views of the future developed within Global Futures and Foresight by their in-house research team and by surveying their worldwide network of future thinkers and business leaders. His purpose is to inspire his audience to embrace change and by so doing, better prepare for the future. Welcome everybody, David Smith. Good morning to you, Simon. So cool to have you here. The future is in the house and you have brought with us a ton of insights in the fields of how do you get ahead? How do you look ahead? How do you use the three horizon and scenario planning and how you encourage forward looking around you? So super pumped. David, what are you currently creating? Okay, uh, yeah, nice to be on the show, uh, Simon. So, um, and thanks for your intro. Right now, and through this pandemic, of all the exciting things that have been going on, um, we've been creating a whole um, line of business for us, a separate business, if you like, called CEO Foresight. Um, it's a very straightforward proposition, born of the fact after 30, 40 years of doing things like this and strategy, uh, I just realized, you know, ultimately how lonely it is as a CEO to get a grip of the endlessly changing world out there, never mind your market or local players or issues that your company has, but all the drivers. So what we thought we'd do, and a number of uh, collaborators have come with me, including prominent economists and others, is to basically offer a service to CEOs, which we can do that as privately as they like, to make them look good with their investors, to look good with their markets, to look good with their customers, to look good with their staff, and to challenge their board to know what the issues are without having to get to deep dive underneath each and every one of them. And we don't do that academically. I've never been particularly excited about being an academic futurist. Uh, it's about so what? So that's what we do. We, we help people think about what's coming and what's the impact going to be. And then we try and do a little bit of, you know, what can you do about it? What, so what, now what? Beautiful. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... Uh, right now listening are uh, a ton of CEOs and I'm also a CEO myself. So you have our attention. We, we need this. This is relevant. Tell us more. What is the, what is, what is the criteria for getting into these uh, circles? Uh, how large or small should the company be? Are you industry agnostic or are there some criteria there? Yeah, good stuff. Um, we are completely industry agnostic. Um, the outside world exists as the outside world, but it just becomes increasingly more relevant and uh, issues become more personalized to your business and market as we get close to thinking about what's changing you. So the size of the business isn't important either. And I guess if you're a pure one-man entrepreneur, one-person entrepreneur, you're not really going to have time to think about some of this stuff because you're already camped on something that's terribly exciting and you're riding the wave to get it going. So that's not really the end. But where, where we really kick off is when you get to the size where you've got an established business of some sort, you're making it work, and it's sort of what next? What, what do I do? How do I, how do I repeat the exercise? How do I keep the headlights on? How do I keep looking out there and being challenged by what's coming? 
So that's what we do. It's a sort of, a, if you like, small to mid-sized companies. And we work endlessly with large companies, massive corporations, because they consume wisdom and insight because they're so desperately slow to change. So they need as much wisdom as they can possibly get in the mix to think about what might come and, and then start working on how to do something about that. So there's no barrier. There's absolutely no barrier to engaging our material. There's no barrier to engaging our service, our thoughts, our thinking. Trust me, I'm not interested in putting things in the way of helping CEOs make more sense of what's coming. It's hard enough as it is. Absolutely. And, and the next question is, okay, when we are in your group and we know what's coming, uh, but we are a middle-sized company, then yeah. how do we make it happen? How we embrace that change mentality and get our people on board to do it. But we will talk also about that later. Okay. Now, uh, now still, still the future. Oh man, this has been a year and everything that was planned is kind of questioned right now. What is your, your take? What is the future from your perspective? Well, it was already where we are before this pandemic, where we were, was a denial of the degree of change we were about to be experiencing. There was a lot of folk who felt, if I just put the next foot in front of the, ne the, the next one, in front of the next one, in front of the next one, if I survive the next quarter, if I get through the next year, that's enough. Well, that is never going to be enough. That was never going to be enough. People trot out these glib phrases, industry 4.0, you know, digitizing, AI, blah, blah, blah. Actually, it's all of it. It's all of it happening at exactly the same time. So it's biological, mixing with inter, uh, information technology, mixing with ludicrous amounts of data, and we've got to know what to do with it, with a changing consumer individual. We're changing our attitude to companies and our information and data and security. So there's all of that, and an awful lot more was changing before the pandemic. What the pandemic did was thrust upon people change that was no choice. You know, you do nothing or you get on board with a whole bunch of new ways of working or living uh, from home. You know, I've got a 92-year-old mother who now will not do anything other than use FaceTime. She doesn't use the phone anymore. She hated the idea of using Zoom or FaceTime before and resisted it like crazy. But now she's deaf. I've always told her she could lip read. And now she does. She lip reads using FaceTime or Zoom. So you can tell people there's something good happening, but they will not take any notice of it because it isn't killing them off, if you like, as a company or something that's on their plate. So we took, we thought we had time. The pandemic has demonstrated to everybody, buy side, staff side, company side, we can do things differently. And just to put a little bit of icing on the cake, so I quite enjoy doing this occasionally, we wrote a report for CBRE, the world's biggest uh, property management company, if you like. And um, it, it said, basically, we will need massively less office space. And the office space we did need was collaboration space, not own space. And therefore, as a business that deals with that, you better start changing and thinking about what you invest in and what you manage and how you manage it. And they loved it so much. They gave me the keynote slot, their customer, their client event a few weeks later. They loved it so, or they hated it so much, they'd never published it. They didn't want to admit that there's a possibility that we would actually do things differently or put their name to it. You know, people like me, and it's not just me, have been screaming this change is coming, but the pandemic has brought it forward. Now, I don't think we'll ever go back to anything like uh, the way we were before because our minds have changed. We've gone online. We're doing things. but It's not as scary as we thought it was. It does broadly work. We can sort of make homework, but this isn't, this isn't new normal. This is lockdown normal. This is a hateful barrier of people meeting. The new normal is going to be a mix of 
remote work and remote activity and things like hospital won't be a, a location anymore. It'll be an, it'll be a, a verb. It'll be an action. You know, the surgery has gone online, which you saw for ages. I mean, that's happened in Israel for years, but in other countries, it's it's taken time. But now, and I want to go to the surgery and sit with sick people in the, in the waiting room. I, I like them coming to my home. If I don't need to be there, I don't want to be in there. So the whole world of real and virtual are now massively mixed up. We wrote a paper on this in May. We did one in April, looking at 20 sectors and how they might change post-pandemic. It's on our website. It's all free. A month later, I thought, let's do another one. And we looked at 40 sectors and how they might change as a consequence. I was going to do one every month, but when I could see this thing was going to last a year, I lost the energy to, uh, to publish a new report looking at more sectors and how they'll be impacted. But of course, it's a massive, massive change. And many folk predicted it. They just weren't being looked at, to be honest. It's like most things in life. If you buy a green car, you suddenly look and find outside the window, there's a lot of green cars. But before, you never look for them. Absolutely. I, I studied philosophy and I was in one lecture with Umberto Eco. And he was asked, Umberto, why do you always write about the Middle Ages? Why don't you write about the present? And he said... I would love to write about the present, but I have never seen it. I don't know nothing about the present. I know everything about the Middle Ages because you can read it. There are numbers. There is everything there. Yeah. But about the present, I only know the present via TV. <laughs> so yeah. I, and I have never seen the present. In your case, uh, you have the numbers about the present and about the future because you, you are asking, you are surveying, you are collecting them. You are curating them. How do you how do you come up with with trends, with 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 the data actually? And so because there is no data about the future, so how how do you do it to see around the corner? Okay, here, here you go. Um, I'm I'm not a futurist who sits in the bath and comes up with brilliant ideas um, because they're not very convincing to people in business. They're they're quite exciting. You can write books about it. And it could be quite dramatic. We allow our science fiction writers to think about these crazy ideas, which are very helpful, by the way. What we do is we do an awful lot of horizon scanning, free horizon mapping, um, SWOT analysis. We do this for clients. We do it for ourselves. We do an awful lot of desktop research. If you look at any one of our papers, and I hate to keep going back to them, but you'll find if we if you write something of about 10 pages, it'll have 150 references. Because, you know, the wisdom of crowds is something we discovered about 20 years ago. Didn't know it was called that until about a decade ago. But we, st we thought, you know, we need to ask people generically, wise people, smart people, people we know, their opinion, and then form our own opinion of what the consequence of that is all going to be or likely to be or the likelihood of it happening. Uh, so we, we do the hard work to try and sift through the signals, the weak signals, if you like. Um, to work out what we think might happen. Then we try and press things together because I'm 100% believe that it's pointless just looking at AI or, or, or CRISP science or life extension or gerontology. Or You have to press all these things together and say, well, what, what's the consequence of some of these things when they converge? Uh, are we going to have? So we, we do the hard work and then try and make it simple. Somebody once said to me when I was working in strategic marketing in a big corporate, they came up with this phrase which they never use because it's classic corporate it's simplexity the art of making complex things simple it, it you know the, the future is unknown it doesn't exist it's whatever you think it is but broadly speaking we can provide sufficient evidence and that's and the reason we do that is that we i've assumed that ceos and smart people who have the burden of strategy uh, on them are smart people 
you know they, they read a lot they think a lot they, they they're very often very logical thinking people they need the evidence well the future doesn't exist so like umberto eco you, you, you there's no evidence like a historian looking at the past but you have to find sufficient evidence and massive evidence of what the future might look going forward and then eventually you get convinced well there's an awful lot of smart people are putting their putting their name to these ideas and thoughts and and visions of what it might be like and therefore maybe they've got something in it so how do i personalize that and make that make that relevant so we use a we do a lot of the hard work i don't actually i just do the showing off bit but the i've got researchers who are brilliant beyond brilliant who are fantastic at picking up on these weak signals and that's what we do for companies i don't promote that again but that's what we do for ceo foresight because there's no ceo in a mid-sized company in the world who can get anywhere close to doing that on any reasonably regular basis and doing it once a year is beyond pointless but that, that really is pointless yeah it's, it's so it's interesting the future doesn't exist it's right now it's like this buzzer moment when there is this buzzer you are asked the question and then you have a couple seconds so when will you answer if you wait until you know the answer it's too late and uh, you have to you have to push that buzzer a little bit earlier before you have the data and the evidence but uh, but uh, not too early so it's it's a mix of having these weak signals but having pattern recognition and and it's also intuition and execution right and say okay we are going to move forward and we will make Okay, the water is cold. It will it will warm up by us jumping into it. There's and, a great and, right, there's a great guy. Forgive me for interrupting there, but I like what you were saying. By the way, there's there's a great guy at, at one of the world's largest insurance companies. I had a one on one with him. I think it was last year when we were allowed to meet, and um, he said, "When when the risk of st staying the same is greater than the risk of doing something, you do something." And that's the, the the cold hard light of change. That isn't innovation. That's change. Innovation is a different thing. It's it's not doing things differently. It's doing different things, and that's innovation. And a lot of people are confusing using a bit of technology to do exactly the same thing. It's a bit like banks. You know, they spent hundreds of millions of pounds putting a statement online that looked exactly like the statement you got in paper. That is not innovation. That is not even dig digitalization. Or digitalization at all it's it's purely copy if you like it's barely it's barely worth the money that was spent on it so i'm with you on that it's, it's, it's absolutely right when the risk of not doing something is higher then you do something beautiful than the risk, yeah. than, than the risk of doing something because everyone focuses on the risk of doing something but actually when the risk of doing nothing i mean trucker says you know most companies go bust because their markets moved you know, the, the, the basis on which our firm is established and runs is no longer relevant, is the way Drucker puts it. Puts it. And it's one of the most brilliant phrases because you have to do absolutely nothing to go bust. You have to do absolutely nothing to be irrelevant. You can have fantastic customer response and, and um, uh, advocacy scores and go bust. You're just irrelevant. I mean, and that's, that's just not the place to be, is it? You have to do nothing to be irrelevant. Yeah, sure. That's true. Amazing. Yeah. So I am very curious. You see so many people and pioneers and laggards. And uh, I'm curious who is your pick for the award? Well, if you cannot pick one person, who is the nominee? In terms of a person, um, 
I, I'd probably say, to be honest, Jane Ann Gardia um, comes to mind. I don't know if you know Jane Ann. She um, has been a pioneer in one of the most backward-looking industries in the world. Um, she's in banking. She came into Virgin, created Virgin One Account. And Virgin One Account is a swept account between mortgages, loans, and, uh, and current account. And it took off, and it changed the entire British banking industry because everybody else had a copy. And actually, it was a dead copy of an Australian model that was standard. And that's what I like about innovation sometimes. It flashes across the world at the speed of a, of a micron. But what Jane Angardia did, she, she came up with the idea of um, greenfield mines. I remember her saying that to her people years ago. Don't come in here with your banking thinking. Come in here with your people thinking. You know, do, do not bring that old thinking forward. And the reason I, I think she's the person, she just started Snoop. I don't know if you know about Snoop. But basically, Snoop, Snoop, for years, people have tried to create methods whereby you can just go to one place and all your accounts are visible. Well, she's done it using open banking, uh, and it's pretty cool. I mean, it really works. Number one, it works. So you just look in one place, and you find all your bank accounts for any decent bank anyway are all in one place. But that isn't the real innovation. That's quite cute and useful. The real innovation, that it's awash with ideas on how to make you more successful. And I've always thought the real, the purpose of a bank is to make your life more successful. It isn't for the bank to make money, which is what they thought they did. So they got into gambling and investment banking and all goodness knows what else they got into. And they got into trouble in a massive way because they started doing things they didn't even get close to understanding. But what Snoop does is endlessly tell you things that have nothing to do with banking. It could be getting theater tickets. It could be getting your car MOT. It could be finding anything. It's just an amazing array of stuff. And it, it's a smart system. So. If you don't like something and you keep going cross, I don't like that, it doesn't appear again. It disappears. So you, it'll shape what it advises you on brilliantly. And of course, one of the things I've always thought of a bank, and I think they're getting close to thinking about doing it, is compare you and your, and your profile with other people in the bank with their profile and how they're doing. If you want to compare yourself, you can do it completely anonymously. Are you doing better? You're doing worse. Things you could do, things you shouldn't do. Can you save a bit of money by going to these people rather than these people? Here's an idea if you thought of doing this. So it does that all the time. And actually, it's quite it's quite um, compelling uh, as a proposition. And uh, I like it because it's backwards. It's trying to help the customer first and being a bank second. Brilliant. Yes. A great, great innovation example. Uh, I, I have just invested in, in a bank di disrupting uh, company called Square where I, th I think they have the potential first to 10x in, in, in 10 years, but especially to, to really come into exactly this field of something that was just a middleman system providing zero additional value. And they come with the value without the middleman. So I think there is a lot of potential there. And um, amazing. Yes. And then there is this thing, okay, we CEOs, we join your club, we know now about the weak signals and uh, how do we now act upon it? What's the mindset? That, how do we embrace change ourselves and how do we help our teams embrace change? I'm a great believer because I went through corporate life for 30 years and got endless training, development, management skills added on to me over the years, some of which was useful, some of it slightly less than useful. Um, one of the greatest things is self-awareness. You know, what makes what makes you an entrepreneur doesn't make you necessarily somebody who can run a company. We know that. That's an obvious given. But what we hopefully are quite good at is choosing people who have got the skills and the gifting to do the right things. 
So number one is, I was talking to somebody about this about eight years ago, and it turned out they were a firm who build indicators. They do the psychometric testing of millions of people. So they built for us an indicator, which by the way, it's free online on our website. You can find it in our, our services bit, I think, and you can click on that. What it does in 40 questions, and it's hideously accurate, is tell you whether you like change or not. It's the most, um, uh, um, I suppose, revealing thing you could do if you're thinking about a world of disruption. Now, you don't have to share it with anybody. It's for you alone, or you can do your whole company or your board of directors. I had a guy that, who's in the city of London in a reinsurance uh, company, and he was brought in as CEO to, um, to bring change. They hadn't changed for 200 years at all. So um, he, I talked to him about it. Charles said, we'll do it. It took a year before he did it. After he did it, he rang me and said, David, the, the indicator was brilliant. We believe it's, it's bang on. He said, I've left. I said, what do you mean you've left, Charles? He said, they realized they were never going to change and actually didn't want or like change. And they realized that I had been brought on to do change and I love change. So he said, the best thing that happened is we had an honest conversation and I left and they can do something else. Now, the purpose of this is not just to kill your career off. That is not the whole point of it. Well, the point of it is, is find the people who are inspired by change. We call it entrepreneur, leader, manager. And it's easy. If you're the entrepreneur, you love camping on change and ideas of change. You don't necessarily run things well, but you might do. But that's your natural energy force, if you like. The manager is a fantastic animal I've never really quite understood, who's brilliant at turning the handle on a regular basis, doing the right things in a regular way, Kaizen improvement, blah, 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 great with staff in every process going. Fantastic people drive out the value of the business. Hate change because you're destroying their much loved and practiced processes. And you've got people in the middle called the leaders who are fantastic because they understand where we should be going to. They understand what it takes to get things done and they can articulate and show the way and they literally can lead the way. So it divides people into groupings. You're not a leader or manager or entrepreneur. They're very rare. But you're normally a leader entrepreneur or leader manager, manager leader. And what this thing does is tell you where you sit in that spectrum. And what I'm, in terms of change is the question you actually asked me is what I would do is if you test enough people, you find enough people, you probably know them intuitively anyway. But if you test enough people, you find your entrepreneur leaders, leader entrepreneur type people, or even entrepreneur managers, and you network them. And one of the best things you can do in your organization, even if it's only a few people, is let them spend some time together, give them a bit of money, give them some attention, but tell them what the relevance is. What, what, what's the relevance of all the things you're looking at? Tell me why it matters to us. You can be our headlights. So you can very quickly have an ongoing internal group who love change you're energized by change and the great benefit is they often do that in their own time they're so energized by it they'll go and do this stuff and read this stuff and look at this stuff because it's just invigorating them whereas so many other people like so many managers if you like i don't mean that pejoratively are burdened by the idea of change you who pretend to like it because corporate says you've got to like it but actually hate it with a passion and wish it would all go away so you know these these people i meet them all the time trust me uh, and and they stand out and they 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 respond differently when i speak to audiences in the old days as a keynote speaker i used to have I don't know, sometimes two three four thousand in the audience and you could, when i was talking about things i would deliberately challenge things to wake folk up and then you literally look out in the audience you could see the faces of people sufficient to know who was being overwhelmed and just wanted me to go into a hole and die and other people who could lap this stuff up and loved it to pieces. 
Now, needless to say, I camped on them for energy for doing the speech. But you know, we, we have all of those people around us, and it's just knowing knowing the right people will give you a chance of being able to change rather than resisting it quietly without you noticing it. Absolutely. And I was just thinking about change, if I like change or not. And to me, the main difference is, do I drive the change or not? So I, I love every change that I can that I can do, but I never like to be changed. And uh, I have to work on that, embracing when like a pandemic or something changes stuff from outside in, I have to really actively work on embracing it. But but my team says that I am changing everything. Every week I come in and I have this new opportunity and this new thing. And they say, Simon, come on, can we please stop changing everything? In the middle of the week, we have a plan for the week. And then you, you see the new shiny thing. <laughs> you, are a key, you are a pure entrepreneur. You, you must do our indicator, Simon. It'd be interesting to see how you come out. Entrepreneur Leader Manager on our website. Try it out. <laughs> I will. I will. And I will report. Yeah, so yeah, that's the execution and the mindset part. What are you experiencing right now, Q4 2020? What are some things where you say, hey, CEOs, you are not taking this seriously enough. Look at these weak signals. Well, that's an <clears throat> I think it depends what business you're in uh, and what sector you're in. I mean, it is sector dependent in terms of how much stability there is there or not. Um, I mean, if you're in retail, if you're not thinking dynamically, about the consumer, the customer. Uh, if you're just putting your wares in a shop and want people to come in and take it off the shelf, well, number one, you're an idiot. Um, that, that process is dead. So you need to think differently about how do you embrace people who physically want to come see you? Because, you know, that might happen next year. You can't you can't just carry on as normal. Um, a lot of, a lot of, anyway, you have to think differently about how you embrace the consumer. I think it was said in a strategy book I read a while ago, which is brilliant, by the way. It said, um, um, you've got to create value, not businesses. Uh, and we've known that, and that's that's a very obvious truth, but we've known that for a long time. Create value, not businesses. Businesses come as a consequence. But we're sort of getting everything the wrong way around. We're trying to grow our business and grow our market share and grow our service offerings. Well, grow value for people. What, what, what do people really want? So I think, number one, we've changed our mind. So. Do not use past experience of how consumers, patients, customers, citizens, shareholders are going to behave because they're not going to behave the same way. They're just not going to behave the same way. It might creep back again next year, but not not this year. That that you know, the games the games afoot, if you like. We've got to think differently about all of that. But also, I'd think you know I've had thirty odd years in technology. I'd say we're seeing a confluence whereby the IoT is generating orders of magnitude more data so everything is going to be quantified human beings will be quantified patients quantified vehicles quantified uh, buildings and access and control quantified we want more of that secure and control and information quantification of things employee performance for example blah 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 the data we'll have is orders of magnitude more so you know we're, we're i'm not going to talk about that because it's a boring subject everyone gets that but it's not. It's like we we now produce a quarter of one percent of the data that matters that humans create. The rest of it is machine generated. So what? What do you do with it? If you're not on it onto it in your sector, then you're in trouble already. So the future will be, and the future is a short future. Every firm will be an IoT firm. It won't just be an intelligent firm. It'll be an IoT firm. What what sensors am I attached to that give me the the data, the wisdom to use AI to determine what I offer 
value to the markets I want to serve. If I'm not doing that little simple transaction, then I'm probably already in trouble. I, I am somebody that, like you, has spent years and decades on stages saying, hey, this is, this is coming. Look, 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 it's here. And then seeing how, how CEOs do not act upon it or they act upon it, but their managers block it, stop it, delay it. So right now we are seeing that people, some people still hide and say, okay, for the next six months, we have no events, but they are scheduling physical events in seven months. So they are still not embracing the change. How do you, because I am out of, I am out of ideas. Uh, how do you do, do it? When you see this, how do you cope with it? Well, you can't mandate it and you haven't got that sort of power. But you try and encourage people to think differently about where they are. You can't just sit in stasis and wait for things to recover. That's stupid. I mean, that, that's, you'll, you'll just do that Drucker thing. You'll just die a death where others grow up around you. But the, during this, we were working with one of the world's biggest um, um, PR companies recently. And I, I said to them, this is when companies should be showing their values and their thinking and their insight and their wisdom to their markets more than ever. This isn't a time to go quiet and put things off for a jamboree in Madrid in July next year. That is absolutely not what people need right now. They need to know your wisdom, your thinking, the smarts, what's your relevance, how do you adapt to their world, and you've got to share it. You know, get it out there. Get it out in messages, in videos, in papers, report. Get it out there. Uh, so thought leadership, there's never been a better time to take an old hackneyed idea and start sharing your wisdom and thinking. If you've got nothing to say, then you're in trouble a bit. You know, most companies of any value have got something to say of any value. Get it out there and start telling people how you can help them through this. You know, it's not about discounting something or making half a service. It's what what can we not what can we do to help? That's a glib phrase. It's what here are the things that we're great at. Here are the things that we want to do. Here's the things that we want to adapt to deliver differently in new ways or completely different services. And I said that right at the top of this. You know, first we do things differently, so we just stick a bank statement online, big deal, and spend millions doing it. Um, and then we do different things. We do a snoop. We just completely change the way we think about information and how it helps inform my life. That is exactly what we should be doing. And for the big companies or medium size who stuck with, with a rigid set of propositions, this is the time to start thinking uh, discordantly. It's not a time to, to go quiet, even though everything's being stressed operationally for cost and profitability. I mean, for goodness sake, it couldn't be a worse time, I imagine, to run an organization. But this is exactly the time that you you, you, you have to start sticking your head above the parapet. And people will remember it. People aren't completely stupid. I remember once saying to somebody, you can't invent a history. You know, if you don't do anything during the time when people needed help, then you get found out afterwards. You didn't help. You just hunkered down. It's a bit like the banks, you know. So we have kept our money and did nothing to help anybody. And they've done nothing to help anybody this time. People will remember that. And they will remember, and it'll be at your cost, the fact that you didn't choose to help people during this time. So get out, document your journey and how you react on it and what your stance is. But go out there, stay active, stay rolling. I'm Very so much. curious about the books, audiobooks, podcasts that touched mm. you recently. But first, I have to thank the sponsors. 
Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses. Go grab them at strategiesprints.com. Are there any books, audiobooks, podcasts that touched you recently? They, they are. Um, one of them is, actually, I've got it here. It, it's, it's called Business Strategy um, by Spencer, Spender. I don't know if you've read this or come near this thing, but it's um, it's a wonderful book. It's written by an academic, um, but it, it crosses between strategy and entrepreneurship, and it does it in a fairly dry way. Look, look, look at this book. If ever a book cried out for a for a diagram, this is it. There's not a single diagram in the entire book, and it talks about SWOTs and it talks about Boston Matrix. It cries out. <laughs> For something a bit more visual. I'm a visual person, so I found it stunningly hard going. Um, we had a swimming pool in the summer, and I, I literally used to sit in there and try and read read this. And I get about three pages in, and my mind will wander off. This is the hardest book to read, but I genuinely think there's a few nuggets of wisdom in that, and it's relatively new. Um, it's called Managing Uncertainty, Opportunity, and Enterprise, uh, with a big title, Business Strategy. Uh, it is worth worth reading, but I tell you, one of the one of the books, and I'm not going to dwell on it because it's, others would have talked about it massively before me, is The Leadership Challenge, 87. It still inspires me. The Kuzis and Posner book. When I was at Unisys, I was part of a body who created a brand new leadership um, path for the, for the people in the company decades ago when the company was still viable. And, um, you know, we got that rolled out to the top 200 managers. And the only reason we did is the CEO came on board that that week, Larry Weinberg, and they came to hear our thoughts. And the board came with him because there were a lot of sycophants there who just wanted to be seen with him. They came and met us. And one, unfortunately, what they'd done is put 20 of the most disruptive people in the company, in the world, in a room, and said, what will you do to change the nature of this company? And I was one of them. So we told them what they had to do. They said, have you any idea the cost and the impact of that? And we said, yeah, we've got an idea how much that is. You've got to do it, though. You've got no choice. So he's only there for a week. So he we said, yes. <coughs> but that whole business about modeling the way, inspiring the heart, shared vision, blah, 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 enabling others to act, that's bread and butter stuff for anybody running any organization. But I can't, you know, it's still so unbelievably relevant. I keep coming back to it in so many ways because you, you don't see it enough in organizations, quite frankly. And it's more relevant when you've got distance distant staff, you've got remote workers, which you were having beforehand, by the way, but we've now got an awful lot of it. And a lot of leaders just can't do it. A lot of managers who like to see their people who are great glad-handing folk locally can't do distance management. And by the way, I'm one of them. I used to run teams in different parts of the world, and my PA used to say, have you spoken to anybody in that organization for the last three weeks? No, should I? Yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> they were out of sight, out of mind, but people around me, I, you know, I'm a very touchy-feely sort of person. So I'm not the person you want to be leading a remote team. You need people who I absolutely admire, who are brilliant at light touch. Anyway, that whole Cooters and Posen uh, is stunningly brilliant to me as well, very relevant as well. Beautiful. Which book or audiobook touched you on, on a personal level? Yeah, that's... Um, I'm allowed to talk about two again. One is, because of what I'm about, is, Fu is Future Shot by Alvin Toffler, 1974. Uh, if you've never read it, uh, you've got to read it. He wrote this thing, I don't know, what, almost 50 years ago now, and it's stunningly accurate. He was a futurist. Who, who people thought he was bonkers at the time. And one of his central premises is this. Look, the world's going to get more ordered and big things will get bigger. 
while the people will want smaller things. Duh. What have we got now? You know, everyone fights for independence, forever smaller bits of geography to have control over. We won't have more influence in our lives. We've got technology that gives us more say in what we want to do than we've ever had before. We've got more direct connection with our governments. So the small things have got smaller and we want more influence. And the big, the big things, the World Health Organization, the uh, WTO, um, Europe, EU, if you like, the big conglomerate, the big things are trying to bring more order in the world. And they're fighting each other all the way through this. Uh, and he, see, he saw that a long time ago. So it's a good read. For me personally, uh, The 60 Minute Father by, uh, um, I think, lovely guy, Rob Parsons, Welshman, um, stunning. I bought four boys up. They're all men now. I wouldn't say it was easy because it wasn't. But the um, I, I would say the 60 Minute Father uh, is a is a brilliant 60 minute read, if that, and it transforms transforms relationships father to child, and it's it is an important relationship that's so missing in so many places and with so many people and so many leaders have missed the uh, good fatherhood and they're busy, but you know let me just give you one example from it it's why it's relevant is. He talks about the fact that he meets up with his kids every year, at least at Christmas. Of course, he sees them more often. And they always talk about when they used to sit in front of the television, eat chocolates after they brush their teeth. They'd lie down there and have marshmallows, and it'd be fantastic. They'd camp out in the living room. And they talked about a childhood full of fun and connection. He said, you know, that only ever happened once. We made a memory, and that memory lasted, and it reverberated through those young people's lives. So if you haven't got time to be to give the kids the time you, you'd love to give them, make a memory. You know, spend that little bit of quality time. I know people talk about it. He talks about make a memory. He also says some other wise things about your idiot and hooligan teenagers and what they do to you and how you can cope, but in a nice way. You know, defend the boundaries. You know, it's about defending the boundaries, the important things. He talks about, I don't know, is choose your battles. You know, the kid comes home with a Mohican haircut. Are you going to kill them? No, not this week. I just checked I just checked on Amazon because I'm a father of boys and um, but I didn't find him. Who's the author? Rob Parsons. Rob Parsons. All Rob right. Parsons. He's he's up there, yeah. I think. I did, I did check. I bought his book years ago. I made a, a a graphic of it on my door, which kid you not, the paper turned brown, stuck on my door in my study of the 12 key things i made 12 little graphics on it just to remind myself of what they were occasionally because it's easy to forget beautiful the 60 minute family it's what i found rob parsons yes beautiful yeah what did you recently change your mind about oh i knew you were gonna ask me that one um what did i recently change my mind about i suppose it's an interesting one um it's an odd one in a way it's not terribly important for anybody else, or even for me, really, um, it was the source of energy for our future cars. You now, isn't that awful? I thought electric was the future, and it isn't. It's fuel cells. Uh, and so even though we're going through an era of um, everything being electricity-focused, I think it was Bentley announced today they were going all electric in their new cars. Um, or, and it is a, a stopgap, but it does require a massively new fuel distribution system expensive whereas fuel cells don't a place like saudi arabia have mandated fuel cell fuel cells in their in their little tiny kingdom as a great little experiment and fuel cells have the capacity to be able to be distributed the fuel distributed at the pump if you like so 
we don't really have to change the distribution method. We just change the tank in the car and under the ground. So I'm a great believer now, I think, or I'm open to question, that hydrogen fuel cells the way forward. And we'll use them in many, many things. They're quite exciting form of energy and uh, it's not electric. Uh, good to hear that. I invested also in Tesla and, and I'm really looking forward to all the things that will happen there. I think cars is just the first step and maybe the, a minor step, but there will be so many other ripple effects there in, in this transition to smarter energies. Autonomous, is... autonomous vehicles. I mean, I think the figures flip-flop between 85 and 95% of the time of a vehicle, of a car at least, is idle. So if you started providing transport for people on the planet now, you wouldn't own a car. That would yeah. just, it'd be a stupid thing to do. I've got three out the front, the drive. In fact, we have five recently because two sons, one dumped a van, uh, thank you, and one dumped his car as he went to university. So we had five cars in the drive doing nothing apart from rotting and getting in the way. You know, this is a stupid system. Um, of course, we're going to whistle up a vehicle like an Uber, and one day it'll be a limo, then it'll be a sports car, then it'll be a, a bedroom, then it'll be a, a meeting room, blah, blah, blah. So, anyway, by the way, I invested in Tesla as well. That, that isn't a bad investment. <laughs> so. I, I am similar to you. One of my favorite books is from the 70s, and it's still accurate. It's by Stafford Beer. It's, what is it? Is, is it... Uh, something something with freedom I, I read it every summer and uh, every time is it a platform a platform for change platform right. for change by Stafford Beer and I read it every summer and the one part strikes me every time where he says hey people we have computers now everything changed so the medicine system should be when you come to your doctor he knows everything because it's around you it's it's here the data is here everything your history is here also, the history of your country is here. Uh, if there is bad water and, and there are these this kind of diseases, it's connected. Your doctor should know he has a computer. And that, so 1970. And, uh, and the other thing is, he says, your apartments are 70% empty, unused. How much percent of your apartment right now is being used? And, uh, and it's the same, if we can go over all lifestyle and all assets, all physical assets and see yeah. how stupid the system is that we are living right now because 70% of everything that we have is just uh, not used right now. The, the systems we've got in place aren't the systems you would implement. You would never implement a supermarket or a hypermarket in a food distribution system today. You wouldn't do it. You know, in the old days, we used to have vans that went around and delivered food to people. Duh. We used to have milk carts and delivered milk to people's homes. Electric, by the way, in the UK. You know, really? And we got rid of them. Good. Okay. That's fair enough. They, they, were, they were aged. Supermarkets won. But you think about it, all that effort to put things on a shelf that people drive to to take things off a shelf and, and drive home, it's just beyond stupid. It would be online, predictive, intelligent. And as they proved in South Korea, it would be daily. You know, I love the fact that a lot of people, and I must admit, even at home, although I'm not joining with that debate anymore, is we've still got weekly shopping. You think, why? why? Why do we do things weekly? Why don't we just do it when we fancy it? And as it can just be dropped off here and there. As the, as the distribution system gets loaded, 
it's no big deal popping in with a half a box of stuff for you. When they have to drive miles just for you, of course it is. But as more and more people use it, you can drop things off very marginal cost and just, just drop off what you fancy tonight. And one day, in my opinion, we'll put food back in the system because our packaging will be so intelligent that we know if it's been tampered with and therefore we'll trust it to go back into the food system. But I don't want it. If you look at the shelves in the kitchen, you've got loads of stuff you've never opened. It just sits there in the back of the cupboard filling it up until you can't get anything else in it because you just shove the stuff you actually like in the front. So take the stuff at the back and give it back. But at the moment, you just have to throw it away. So, you know, we've got, I mean, we've got a stupid system with stupid packaging in uh, a stupid method. So eventually we'll get clever. We waste about 40% of food stuff in the world every year. We don't need to grow more food. We just need to throw less of it away. Absolutely. So exciting to see the world getting smarter. And even this pandemic and all the crisis that we are experiencing, they are accelerating our learning, actually, and our action. So where can people uh, read and, and, and get more of your knowledge and wisdom and surveys? Well, I'd say if you go to our website, www.thegff.com, Global Futures and Foresight, the GFF, um, com. There on there are all of the reports and papers that we've actually finally got around to putting up. There's about 30 or 40. We look at the role of, 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 of CIOs, calling them entrepreneur leader managers. Have we got the right people looking after the technology in our firms? We've got reports that look at AI, that look at blockchain, that have looked at um, I don't know, every form of uh, important technology, IoT, and we've got reports on different industries and we've got these sector these reports we've done recently and there's loads of videos up there or some i i, I don't put many up i'm not an egotist i just put i don't know 10 videos up there talking about some stuff on there there's a series on there looking at what you know why do we have foresight why do we bother with the future there's a series of videos on that why bother look ahead i mean it's a good question to ask i've got enough problems on my own without inventing tomorrow's um good friend of mine who was on my board when I ran Global Future Forum for Unisys. Um, it was, by the way, I started that with them in, in 2000. But the Bob Heller wrote 60 books on management theory. And uh, he wrote um, he wrote The 60-Minute Manager, actually. He, he's the author of that first title that Rob Parsons borrowed for his series. But um, he said, there's no point surviving today if you don't know where you're going tomorrow. Sorry about that. There's, there's no point. It's very nice, but eventually you'll trip up and fall off a cliff or you'll bump into a wall. You know, that, that's not the point of, of, of running anything. It's you've got to have a vision where you're going to. And th that's the point is you have to know where you're going to. And our reports and our papers and our thinking are up there as best we possibly can to give you ideas. We've got a bunch of methods because you don't have to spend a fortune on people if you don't want to. Just look at the methods, get, get some inspiration on how do I do three horizons. Any company that doesn't use Three Horizon now is putting themselves at risk. Because SWATs and EOMAs and Boston Matrix have their place very much, uh, and scenario planning very much. Uh, they give you an idea of what might shape the way the future is, and they're brilliant. But what, I was, what Three Horizon does is let you think about the now and the wacky stuff out there that you've thought about that might creep up and do something to you for good or bad, and then how you bridge the gap, the Horizon 2. It's how to bridge the gap. How do I, how do I make, make the movement without betting the farm on some of this wacky stuff? But how do I prepare myself in advance? So Three Horizon is absolutely the way to go. And it's described up there, so you can have a look and see. 
see how to do it. It's very straightforward. Uh, we do these with clients all the time. It's quite fun, actually. I love the fact that there's all, I always leave people alone eventually to, to get on and do it. And I love the discussion. You're, you're seeing a, a board or a group of people having a discussion about some wacky stuff they wouldn't have spent the time of day on one minute ago. And suddenly they see the relevance by linking it with what they're doing today. And then that's when you, the job's done. I, I, I've got nothing else to offer anybody. They simply worked out that the wacky stuff of the future sort of matters today. Uh, and Horizon 2 is where you need to start thinking about. And then you need the vision. Well, I'm a great believer in having a vision. Beautiful. Thank you so much, David. Who should be my next guest? Yeah, I thought about that. There's a lot of people I admire, but I was going to suggest Graham Leach. And Graham is an economist. Um, I don't know if you've heard Graham speak. He was, he's spoken at hundreds of events all over the world. Great writer. He's a prolific writer. He's just written a book called Coronanomics. Uh, it's a really good read, actually. It's quite, it's quite accessible. Hopefully, it'll get published fairly soon. Um, he's written many other things. He's a great believer in small government. So at the moment, we've got the biggest government we've ever had, as governments are propping up people's salaries and everything else, which is good. But it doesn't, you know, will, will, will the government retreat afterwards? Will it withdraw some of those areas? Um, the cost of it, for sure. So Graham Leach, economist, he was 17 years the chief economist and head of policy at the Institute of Directors. So he's, he's well-known, he's well-loved. He's also a very interesting guy to talk to. He's very dynamic, he's very flamboyant, he's very colorful, um, and he's, he's, as an economist, uh, I spent a little time working with him and I helped create a new strategy for the IOD back in 2014. Um, and I got to know him there, and brilliant. I can't, you know, I can't remember the, the number of times you went to German Street 200 yards away from um, Pall Mall, where his offices were, a bit more than 200 yards, and he'd buy some bright orange or pink flamboyant tie or shirt. So, you know, he's, he's a great guy, Graham Leach. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, David, for being on the show. And uh, I just bought on Amazon the 60 Minutes Father. I'm super curious. And uh, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and journey with us. Brilliant. Come back soon. My pleasure, Simon. Good to talk to you.